Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's March 30th, 1842, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Dr. Crawford Williamson Long is probably not a name you've heard before, but you should have, because it was on this day in 1842, and he was only 26 years old at the time as well, that he removed a tumour from the neck of a patient, James Venable, having first, and for the first recorded time in history, anaesthetised him with ether. I think the thing that most terrified me about this story was the advanced state of surgery versus the very nascent uh, <laughs> state of the whole business of anaesthetics. You know, this is this is a time when they knew how to amputate arms and legs, but they didn't know how to knock you out first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to the extent that people would avoid having surgery for fear of the pain, understandably. And actually, these gases, which had started to be discovered in the 1700s, people understood that they could be used to produce numbness or insensibility, but people were just understandably too afraid to try it out. I mean, these gases were still new, they're completely unpredictable. There was no concept whatsoever of how much might kill someone or leave them with permanent injuries. And so in the years before Long carried out this milestone surgery, there had been experiments with ether and nitrous, but they were either used for very minor purposes, such as relief from toothache, yeah. or recreationally. And interestingly, mm. this is how... Dr. Crawford Long actually came to experiment with ether. Is that he, I'll keep it more that it makes sense that you say he was 26, Ali. Him and his <laughs> friends were using ether for what he called its exhilarating effects. And he happened to notice that while they were getting high on ether, if they had a bump or a fall, it was completely painless. And that was what led him to think, maybe I should do operations with this. Yeah, so he was at parties <laughs> at the University of Pennsylvania. Just imagine yourself, you know, in your 20s, studying medicine, turn up with some guys and basically instead of having a six-pack of beer or a spliff to pass around, you bring along a load of ether. And this was known as ether frolics. And it's funny, isn't it? Bearing in mind everything you just said about like, all oh, people were too frightened to use it in a medical context because they didn't know what it did to you, but they were quite happy to use it recreationally and they didn't know what it was going to do to you. So there were parties yeah. where you'd kind of wake up and everyone around you had passed out because they'd had too much ether, but that was fine. One of those parties where things got out of control and one thing leads to another and sooner or later someone's taking someone's tumour out of it. <laughs> well, Long wrote, uh, on several occasions I inhaled the ether for its exhilarating properties. And not really what you want to hear your surgeon say, is it? Uh, and would frequently discover bruises or painful spots on my person which I had no recollection of causing and which I felt satisfied were received while under the influence of ether. So then he had to think, right, I want to prove that you can use this uh, as an anaesthetic. It's the holy grail if I get it right. Painless surgery. How do I go about that? Well, how you went about that in 1842 is, of course, you experimented on your friends and family. Um, so he was constantly mm. taking ether to see if it was having the required effect. And at one point actually gave ether away, was handing it out to the local youths for them to mess about with so that he could observe them and try and work out what the right dosage was <laughs> before they started passing out and hurting themselves. 
Hello, local youth. <laughs> Fancy some ether. <laughs> and it's interesting, there was so much fighting over who invented ether anaesthetic, but ether only had a pretty brief heyday as the anaesthetic of choice. Because in 1847, the anaesthetic properties of chloroform were discovered. And by 1853, no less a personage than Queen Victoria, and Ariane, she didn't write about it in her diary. Know, Don't worry, there's nothing to be quoted. She was anaesthetised in 1853 by Dr. John Snow for the birth of Prince Leopold, and then again for Princess Beatrice in 1857. So, you know, that's really an unbeatable testament to the safety of the procedure. And from then on, it went on to be, you know, a mainstream part of surgery. Yes. And Queen Victoria having it was kind of the beginning of the end of the controversy about anaesthetic during childbirth as well. And don't get me wrong, I realise that it's still something that many women feel they should or shouldn't have. Um, But in Mm. terms of the religious element to it, there was unease about anaesthetic for any kind of surgery for religious reasons because of a line in Genesis. God says, woman in sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children. In other words, God has said, surgery is supposed to hurt. Childbirth is supposed to hurt. People didn't like the idea of playing God anyway, which is still a debate that's had, obviously. But specifically, they felt if you were having an anaesthetic during childbirth, you were contradicting God. Um, And that was the state of play for decades. But then Queen Victoria having chloroform was the thing that really changed the fortunes of anaesthetic during childbirth in this country because she was the head of the Church of England. So if the head of the Church of England Mm. is doing it, there's no argument for any priest under her to then be saying, oh, this goes against the spirit of God. So actually, that was a really (laughs) powerful moment in terms of how it was seen in its religious controversy as well. Yeah, and in terms of religious controversy, that was actually the reason that the world was denied a successful anaesthetic hundreds of years earlier. So in China, which had been at the forefront of developing you know, herbal drafts that were supposed to render patients insensible, there was a surgeon called Hatuo, and he had come up with this mixture that he called mafei-san, probably contained herbs including cannabis, all dissolved in wine. But there was this taboo around surgery and Confucian thought. It was seen as a form of mutilating the body, which mm. was was an absolute no-no. So although this mixture had been such a success, it didn't catch on. And when he died, it died with him. And then chloroform itself then came under attack in the 20th century when it was shown to be carcinogenic by ingestion in laboratory mice and rats. So that went out of favour too. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's often tempting, isn't it, to look back from our vantage point and think that we've reached the ultimate evolution of all of these things when... There's no reason to think we have with anaesthetic. I mean, anaesthetic still kills people. I have a great aunt who died during an operation because the anaesthetic killed her. You know, it does. it's not common, yeah. but it happens. Um, and so you kind of think, actually, we're probably quite naive about this as well. There's still probably hundreds of years of development to get to a completely different way of painless surgery yes. that doesn't involve knocking someone out with a drug. Also, chloroform going out of favour in this regard, but then being redeveloped to be used in fluorocarbons and then in aerosol propellants and also refrigerants, made me think about the way that we just have this sort of limited supply of chemicals and herbs and so on that we then continue to repurpose in different ways and find different purposes yeah. for. For example... Not like we've discovered them when they were always there in the table of elements. Right, right. But like, for example, Viagra was a originally created to treat high blood pressure and angina, which is that sort of bad chest pain that comes from poor blood flow. Rogaine, which is this popular hair growth prescription, was originally invented also to treat high blood pressure. Valium, which is now used to treat anxiety and seizures, was discovered by accident when scientists were working on a class of dyes. So there's just sort of this chemistry kit that's being thrown up in the air and people are like, ooh, that's interesting. I didn't know it could do that. I wonder if there are (laughs) Georgian medical students having Viagra frolics now. (laughs) (laughs) But without this development, 
and other innovations like uh, the artery clamp and antiseptic precautions, we wouldn't have all kinds of surgery that we now take for granted. You know, exploratory surgery mm. didn't happen before pain relief. Elective surgery basically didn't happen. You only went for surgery when your, your limb was falling off. Brain surgery yes. definitely didn't happen. Yeah, because although anaesthetics are obviously a huge medical milestone, they didn't have the instant impact, you might think. I mean, for us looking back, it's easy to imagine people being like, great, I can finally have that, you know, major surgery I've been putting off all of this time, just mm. knock me out and do it. But they still hadn't invented antiseptic methods. They wouldn't become widely known until the 1860s. So antiseptics and anaesthesia sort of grew in parallel together. And as each one became more refined, more complex operations became possible. So at least in its early years, anaesthetics really just made those small operations less painful. Yeah, and I reckon some surgeons still would have been dubious about using this technology even when it arrived because it meant that you could do all kinds of operations that previously had seemed kind of optional. You know, they might have thought, well, I got into this to help people that desperately need, like, where there's clearly no choice. You know, the person's going to die, so I'll intervene and do this thing and make them better. Whereas then you had this situation of, like, oh, okay, so she might die in five years and I can keep her going for ten years, but then she might die under Mm. the anaesthetic... That's a completely different moral framework, isn't it, to work within, if, especially if you're a religious person. Yeah, but despite the additional difficulty and the new ethical questions that were coming up, it seems like the majority of surgeons would have definitely embraced anaesthesia. We've got accounts of how gruelling and distressing the job of being a surgeon mm. actually was. Mm. We've got diaries and letters that describe surgeons having so much distress at the prospect of operating on conscious patients, you know, who'd sometimes have to be held down as they struggled free, that surgeons were going and throwing up with anxiety before they had to go out there and do this. I mean, it must have been, you know, it's easy to focus on obviously how traumatic it would have been for the patient, but for the surgeons as well, it must have been an incredibly traumatic job. Because there's no turning back once you started, is there? You know, you got your hand in someone's stomach, you got to finish. <laughs> Tomorrow. He refused to turn around from the orchestra pit to face the cheering audience. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.